BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hi, this is Josh Marshall, and this is the Josh Marshall Podcast. Today, uh, we've got, we got a bunch of things we're going to talk about today. We are going to, you know, the, the, the big story you know, it's the big story, and it's also kind of like a trivial, marginal story, and yet it's also a very critical story, and that is this this sort of back and forth between uh, the members of the House Republican Caucus as they, you know, decide and debate amongst themselves when they are going to make Liz Cheney walk the plank <laughs> and and push her out into the ocean off the boat. And I think it has sort of crystallized, you know, there was, um, I don't know when that other vote was. They had a vote maybe, what, three weeks ago, something like that, maybe as long as a month. I don't remember exactly. And, and there was, you know, drama. And yet uh, Cheney won the vote by an overwhelming proportion. I think it was maybe like she got two thirds of the vote or something like that. And 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 the the takeaway was okay, this was this was more of a media story. She obviously has, you know, pretty strong support in the caucus. Um and yet and yet just in the last um just in the last several days, things have sort of escalated and crystallized, and it really does seem like now, like she's on the way out. Now, we don't know these caucus meetings are usually, I mean, I think it's kind of up to the people running the running the uh, election. These caucus meetings are often with a, a secret ballot, in which case people can, you know, they can do what they want. But now it's pretty clear that the uh, minority whip, Steve Scalise, uh, you know, uh, kind of self-compared uh, favorably to uh, uh, David Duke, you know, uh, has his own uh, political problems. Um, not that those seem to matter anymore. And also Kevin McCarthy have, have in different ways signaled that they're kind of done with Liz Cheney. And I suspect, you know, if you go back to that vote a few weeks ago, uh, McCarthy was, you know, kind of dinging her here and there. But on balance, he was, you know, he was behind her. And that's going to have a big, that's going to have a very big effect. Uh, if they're both saying they're done with her, I mean, first of all, I don't think they would be saying they were done with her if the caucus wasn't pretty close to being done with her. So these these two things... Uh, you know, kind of play off each other. And the other thing with Cheney is that take Mitt Romney. Romney's not in the leadership of the Senate. He's, you know, he had that thing out in, uh, you may have seen in Utah a few days ago where he got kind of booed, you know, for not, not, not loving uh, Donald Trump enough. And he voted for impeachment. The second take voted for impeachment both times. Actually, now that I, now that I come to think about it, 
But he voted for impeachment. He didn't spare any words about what the insurrection was about. All the, all those kind of things. But he's not looking for opportunities these days to say it again and again and again. Not that he maybe doesn't need to. You know, he's made it clear where he stands. But Cheney, over the last week, last couple weeks, she has said it over and over again and in a very unequivocal way. Trump's bad. You're undermining the republic if you keep spreading these lies that the election was stolen and the insurrection was terrible and we can never let it happen again. So I kind of wonder, and I think a lot of people kind of wonder, like, what's Liz Cheney up to exactly? What, where is she? Where does she think this is going? Because it doesn't seem to be going. Uh, it doesn't seem to be going too well in a near-term political calculus for her. It seems like she's about to be kicked out of the leadership uh, of the House GOP, and I think she's at least got a pretty serious, uh, you know, re-election challenge in Wyoming. Uh, is uh, I should know this. Wyoming is still a single district. Yeah, of course it is. It's got like I think it's like the second smallest population in in the uh, in the country. So you know. <laughs> She doesn't have to worry about redistricting. It's all, it's the whole state. Uh, so she's got all that. And so what is what is she what is she trying to do? I I I, I get the sense that there's things about Cheney, both Cheneys, she and her father, the sort of the foreign policy views and stuff like that. Some of the stuff that a lot of Democrats really do not like about the Cheneys. There's a lot of stuff politically not to like about the Cheneys, to put it mildly. But there are certain things like that that probably predisposed her to be kind of unfriendly to Donald Trump. All the stuff about, you know, the 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 deeply transactional uh, foreign policy, anti-NATO, uh, you know, w- with everything with Trump uh, against the uh forever wars except when he wants to start one or you know when they seem popular but my sense is she just was rightly pretty offended and aghast at what happened like a lot of people were and she kind of planted that flag and i get the sense she's kind of temperamentally not willing to walk away from that Again, as I said, she could just kind of stop talking about it. You know, she doesn't have to recant exactly. Um, but what is what's interesting about this beyond the question of who's going to be the head of the GOP conference? Which, let's be honest, it's not a, like a, an, an earth-shattering position, right? It's it's just a kind of a perfunct, perfunctory part of the of the leadership when you when when you're in the minority. What is really striking is that this drama has captured how much the foundation, and really not just the foundation, almost the totality of Republican identity, what the party stands for, is Trump, the big lie, and what we might call insurrection denial. Didn't happen, was awesome, but it didn't happen. Would have been awesome, but it didn't, you know, all, all that kind of stuff. But Donald Trump and the big lie. Because what what Kevin McCarthy said, I think, two or three days ago when he kind of first signaled that he was probably done with her, 
he said she can't deliver the message. And that is that that is kind of one of the key uh, jobs of the of the head of the conference. That person, you know, keeps everybody not keeps everybody in line. That's the whip. But you know, keeps the message operation moving, moving forward and stuff like that. And he said, she, she can't deliver the message. And the thing is, that's true. (laughs) How can you, how can you be in charge of messaging for any part of the Republican party and be saying Trump is a threat to the Republic and this whole thing about the stolen election is a lie? I think about it. You can't. And the fact that you can't again, underscores that that is what being a Republican is now. Certainly in the House, you know, there's a there's a scattering of, of senators who kind of don't sign on that dotted line, but that's it. And, and that is really what is significant about this. You know, we had a, um, we had a reader email at the site uh, that I published a couple days ago. And, uh, you know, you can just scroll down on the editor's blog. I think it's a TPM reader WB. And this person said that what it shows, you know, the country's kind of moved on from Trump. And I don't just, I mean, Democrats were, were you know, wanted to move on from him forever. But in the sense, like, you know, I actually saw there was an article uh, out yesterday, some study of, you know, one of these things where they look at Google data and basically Donald Trump just the topic, him, about him, anything, is just no one's doing searches about Donald Trump. No one's paying attention. He's he's the old news. He's just in the past. And yet, for partisan Republicans, so they have become even more fixated on him. And he said that that has created this thing, that it's it's made Republicans more distant politically, partisan Republicans more distant politically from the rest of the country. Because as long as Trump was president, we're all, we all had to be concerned about Donald Trump. He was the issue. He was the president. He was insane, but he's a president, and that makes him the most important thing. Um, so we're going to talk about that. We're also going to talk about uh, what is uh, kind of implicit in him dropping off the radar, which is, you know, his, his well, first of all, him, him ceasing to be president, which obviously annoyed him a great deal, losing his Twitter account, this this really uh, absurd drama about whether this, you know, board of worthies that reports to Zuckerberg is going to reinstate his Facebook account. And and he he they've his people have announced that he's launched his own platform, which you know, don't get a kidder. I recognize it's a blog, <laughs> right? It's a reverse chronological order thing that just has his little little statements and like a little Twitter link to um, to uh, if you want to share it. So we're going to talk about that. We're also going to get to some really good uh, reader emails. Let me remind you that spring wouldn't be spring without all the springy stuff. Frisbee, barbecues, picnics, some variation of those things. Oh, and iced coffee. Ring in the springtime with Grady's New Orleans-style cold brew kit. Just add water to the reusable store-and-pour pouch and brew overnight for velvety smooth coffee you can drink iced or hot. Bring it to the park, take it camping, or add a shot of vodka if you're feeling adventurous. I got to say, I've never – this is – you know, I'm a big coffee drinker. This 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 adding, uh, adding uh, spirits to it has just never occurred to me. I have to try that. But it's spring, and you're allowed to do that kind of stuff. That's actually the next thing. That's not just me ad-libbing. That's actually in the copy. 
So if you're ready to give it a swirl, get 25% off your first order at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. That's Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. And I, you know, I'm watching here, and if you're watching us on watching the podcast on YouTube, you're seeing it too. My my co-host Kate, I think I'm I'm watching her looking at her microphone. And this is, you know, this this, you know, in the last episode, maybe it was the last two episodes, we thought like, oh, you know, hey, uh, Kate, Kate has a, you know, has a new, uh, new audio setup, but it didn't sound that much better. And it turned out it wasn't really working. (laughs) And like after one of the episodes, I think I I wasn't the only one, but I was like, you know, are you sure it's actually working? In any case, it was not working, but now it seems to be working, but maybe, maybe we're wondering if it's working. So Kate, what is up? Thanks for bearing with us through these, (laughs) these audio trials. Um, you know, I'm pretty much the the least tech savvy millennial that exists, you know, more, as Josh put it, more of an honorary member of, you know, baby boomers or even the greatest generation. So, you know, shout out to my uh, much more tech savvy boyfriend without whom Josh and I would be shouting back and forth to each other. So here we are, sounding like we're an omniscient God. I hope that's the no, goal. No, it is. It's, <laughs> and now we, ser- we're, we finally have like kind of, I think like top flight audio quality. Professional. Yeah, yeah. So speaking of professionals, back to the Republican infighting that's happening right now. Um, And, you know, an interesting thing about this is that the tension between specifically Cheney and McCarthy has been evident for months. Um, You know, it was palpable at that press briefing um, where a reporter asked if Trump should be part of CPAC. And, you know, Cheney said, I don't think he should be part of the future of this party at all. And McCarthy was like, oh, of course, he's the president. And it was this really awkward, tense moment that then McCarthy was like, and on that high note, and broke up the press conference. And and that, that, was, that was like uh, late January, the beginning of February. Yep. I'm trying to more. Yeah. So, so within, still within two or three weeks after the insurrection, just after uh, uh, Biden had become president. You know, it's the thing about that, the thing about that, awkward moment is it it crystallized for me that Cheney has zero respect for Kevin McCarthy. She thinks he's an idiot and she treats him like an idiot. And I'm sure that that has helped drive this forward. You know, Cheney or her dad, I believe was chief of staff for at least part of the Ford administration. Um, you know, he he's Cheney, her father, Dick Cheney, has been at the highest echelons of politics, certainly Republican politics, since she was a little girl. So she has been around that world for ages. And I think in some ways she sees herself, not unreasonably in some ways, as part of the old grown-up Republican Party that has now been taken over by Trump, who they who those people see as an embarrassment, uh, and then uh, coddled by just sort of nobodies like Kevin McCarthy, who were just willing to kind of, you know, there's there's that memorable thing where when, when early in Trump's campaign in, in uh, 2015 or 2016, where they actually had that conversation where McCarthy's like, yeah, I think he's he's getting paid off by Putin. Right. So, so, but as soon as he's in power, then he's like the biggest Trumper ever. Uh, so Cheney, she just in that, that, that moment you describe, she was taking a dig at Trump, but really far more at Kevin McCarthy. 
because he's the leader of the congressional party or the House party. And she just disrespected him at a huge level, put him in a really bad spot. Because again, she has zero respect for him. She thinks he's an idiot and she's like the real thing. That's that's clearly where she's coming from. And she has made zero effort to conceal that or even put it on the back burner. Right. And, you know, that attitude is kind of carried through since the House GOP retreat in Florida, which is when tension kind of became antagonism in their relationship, I think, because that's the time that, you know, Cheney was taking every question that reporters asked her. And that that's unusual. It doesn't matter what side of the aisle you're on. If you get asked an uncomfortable question, like these people are really good at squirming out of it or at giving you know, really anodyne statements that always start with, as I've said before, to signal to the reporter, this is not new news and this isn't something you should report. But she's taken every pitch, every pitch and done an on the record statement that breaks with McCarthy, you know, in in no, in, with no ambiguity, just clearly, I completely disagree with him on basically every spoke coming out from the central schism of she believes that Trump should be held accountable and nobody else in the Republican Party does, basically, with a few exceptions. Um, and what's different this time, I think, before that other vote where McCarthy ended up kind of standing by her and she survived it, is that we've also had a replacement, an eager replacement step forward. And part of the problem with the Cheney situation is that we've known that people like Jim Banks on the Rules Committee, like there are House Republicans who wanted her job, but she is the sole woman in House Republican leadership. And without her, it's back to being all white men. And that is a common, almost constant optics problem for the Republicans. So they don't want to get rid of her and put another white man in her stead because they know that every time McCarthy gives a press conference, it doesn't look super great that he's flanked by a bunch of white men in suits. Whereas for Democrats, you know, you have Nancy Pelosi's at the podium, and then you've got, you know, Hakeem Jeffries behind her and just like a much more diverse uh, contingent. But Jim this, Clyburn. Exactly. You know, Steny Hoyer's like the the token white guy, right, on the, <laughs> on, the, on, the, on, the, on the House leadership team on the Democratic side. Right. You know, to, to your point about Cheney, the, the obvious thing for her to say if she's trying to move on from it is to say, look, I've been clear where I stand on this. But that's in the past. And, you know, Joe Biden is bringing us to socialism and we are 100 percent united on that's the wrong direction for the country. And we need to win back that. I mean, not hard to do. Exactly. That's just a really kind of, you know, doesn't uh, doesn't have her eating her own words, but also moves on. You know, not here to talk about that. We're right. all here to be friends. Now, do you have a sense of like she. <laughs> It wasn't that she was taking all the questions. She escalated it. I mean, I don't, it's, it's hard. I mean, what she was saying back in January was pretty, you know, fulsome and pretty stark, but I feel like there was a statement she gave. I don't know if that's like the kind of the secret briefing with, with uh, Paul Ryan or which of these, but in any case, it became public basically saying he should have no, he should have no role in public life. The big lie is poisoning our democracy and the, you know, kind of just very stark and just, is she, does she, 
what is what is she trying as best as you can tell what is she trying to accomplish yeah well i mean in totally in line with that there's something i i wrote today that i want to come back to but when she was commenting on the need for a 9-11 style commission for January 6th, she could have so easily, like you're saying, just said, we need a commission. We need to understand what happens. Bing, bang, boom. You know, that, that quote would have been taken and moved on. Instead, she said, we need a commission to make sure this never happens again. And she even got into her feelings on the scope of it, which, you know, the the kind of Republican attempt to poison pill the whole thing is to say, we'll participate as long as it's also a fulsome examination of, quote unquote, left wing violence, which they call the overwhelmingly peaceful Black Lives Matter protests from last year, plus just amorphous Antifa. Antifa, yes. yeah, the whole, the whole, everybody who's been mean. Right. But she said, yeah. she says in this quote to reporters from the retreat in Florida that, you know, she's concerned about those kind of imaginary left-wing violences, but that this probe needs to focus just on January 6th and the events that led up to it, which is smackingly in contradiction to what McCarthy and the whole Republican caucus basically has maintained. But it goes along with what you were just saying, Josh, and this like, she's not attempting to defend herself from this stuff at all. Like we know that she's not whipping for support. So she's not calling around and asking people, hey, will you stand with me when this vote? She's not even doing that. She's not trying to shore up her alliances. It just seems like she's at the point where she's like, you know what, I'm done with this. It's not worth it anymore. Meanwhile, Elise Stefanik, who's emerging, you know, as the the pretty obvious replacement contender, young woman from New York, um, who- And like very young. I think she's well under 40, right? She's maybe, maybe not even 35, maybe yeah. 35, you know, very young and, and yeah. what, like three or four terms- Two or three terms, something like that. Yeah, more or less in that in that ballpark. Relatively, yeah. you know, kind of pretty new in the in the house. And the thing about her is, she kind of converted from being, you know, a moderate, and her voting record is still fairly moderate. But in 2019, abrupt pivot to being a full throated Trump supporter, um, and that got her some attention, especially during the was it the second impeachment trial. It's hard to keep up on all the impeachments. That's one of Donald the impeachments. I know. Yeah. She, she, in one of those, she kind of had her star turn when people learned who she was and she became. Um, I think it was the first. I think yeah. it was the first because it, honestly, the second is all kind of a blur. Well, all kind of a blur. And also that there wasn't at the time the big defense such as it was, was this whole idea, he's not president, so you can't impede, just, just these kind of technical things. Like no yeah. one was, there weren't a lot of defenses on the merits. It was all about the Ukraine, it was the Ukraine impeachment, I right. think. Yeah. And so, and, you know, kind of the interesting thing about Stefanik is that a lot of people have been citing uh, her and Cheney's scores by the Heritage Foundation, which scores how conservative the member's voting record is. And Cheney's actually has a distinctly more conservative record than Stefanik, which shows you how much the Republican Party is really no longer ideologically aligned with anything other than how loyal of a foot soldier you are to yeah. Trump. Well, it just it just shows, as, as, as I think we were, we were saying earlier, that... This whole thing just brings into stark relief that policy, as we under, have always understood it, has has very little to do with anything going on in the Republican Party right now. It is it's Trump loyalty to Trump, embrace of the big lie, the stolen election, and the insurrection never happened. 
right. insurrection wasn't a big deal. It was, you know, you just just don't be a snowflake, blah, 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 blah. Because as you said, I think I saw, I saw this thing too. And like her voting record on that thing was like 45% or something like that. So like, you know, not that that's that's not very good. But for, you know, if you want to be down with the Heritage Foundation, but it's also an example. I mean, you have she's in she's in, I think, what is basically the most conservative district in New York State, which is the one that's basically um, a big chunk of the northernmost part of the state. And basically, you know, once you get out of the greater New York City area and out of, you know, the sort of the Buffalo area, it's pretty conservative. But even in New York, even in the conservative parts of New York, you can't it's not like it's not like the South. I mean, it's like the South in some ways. There's plenty of areas in New York where you see like Confederate flags and stuff like that. But you kind of have to be like she was, where your voting record still, you know, relatively moderate by national um, by national standards. And uh, it's funny when you say how she's kind of you know she's done right. She's done with it. it the funny the funny thing is is that McCarthy's right. How can she possibly do the job? The job is supposed to be she is the one kind of keeping message on point for the Republican caucus. And on the defining issue, she totally disagrees with them. Right. I mean, she's more outspoken about the insurrection than most Democrats are in the House, which is a whole other problem, frankly, that they're not. I'm not saying Democrats are into it, but like, I think it is a problem that... It is not the case that every time a Democrat goes up to talk about anything in front of a microphone, they need to be saying something about it. And also, Republicans supported the insurrection. And if you let them back in power, you're going to have more insurrections. Yeah. It's just, just, you know, every single time you should be saying it. And I think a piece of that, uh, which kind of occurred to me when I was thinking a lot about this, especially this retreat weekend where it seems like things turned a corner. You know, one of the things, like I said, that and she turned it. And that's the yeah. thing. She turned it. I mean, I'm not, it's not a blame, but I mean, she right. walked into it. She leaned into it. But the quote that I read about the January 6th commission, I think is an important piece of this that has flown a little under the radar, which is obviously McCarthy had a lot of reasons to want her gone. You know, I mean, like you said, the prevailing thing in the Republican Party right now is loyalty to Trump is a litmus test. And she which she failed. <laughs> so he didn't want her in leadership. He doesn't want her potentially giving voters a reason to keep Democrats in power. But also, McCarthy has a very personal reason for not wanting to have a January 6th commission, which is he called the president while the violence was unfolding and asked him to call off the mob. And yeah, as we about know, this. Yeah. 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 It's, well, it's easy to forget about because he so studiously has not talked <laughs> about it. But if you remember, it was... Uh, Representative Jamie Herrera Butler, who dropped the bomb in the middle of the second impeachment trial when she was like, oh, yeah, I know about that. Right. And released a statement uh, capturing some details of the call that, you know, McCarthy finally reached him. He said, we need you to call this mob off. Trump said, oh, it's Antifa. It's just an Antifa invasion. And McCarthy said, no, it's not. These are your people. Call them off. And Trump shrugged and said, well, you know, Kevin, I guess they're more upset about the election than you were. Which right. is and, and just to, to yeah to draw out the point why it is awkward for him is that he was on the right side yeah he he was basically and I think there was in the various 
uh, renditions of this call, which everybody's going, I think, from memory, that I think in that call, um, you know, Trump said, well, they stole the election. He's like, dude, no, it's done. It's done. Right. We're done. So he really kind of had this brief moment of standing up to Trump and saying, dude, it's fucking over, man. Right. I mean, which makes sense because he was in danger when he made yeah. this call. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Totally, yeah, but totally. the other reporting of this call has, you know, verified with different anonymous lawmaker accounts that it got explosive that, you know, McCarthy was said, who, who the fuck do you think you're talking to to Trump? But like they were, it got really heated. They were really fighting. And, you know, it makes sense. We also saw McCarthy give that floor speech right after the insurrection where he did put the blame on Trump. So there was mm -hmm, at least mm -hmm. like, I don't yeah. know, a 48 hour window where he was will he seems mad or scared enough to have blamed Trump for what happened. There was a lot of, you know, if you remember, you know, after the insurrection, like right after mm -hmm. they reconvene to, to do what they were, you know, to do the the ceremonial kind of counting and, and uh, you know, confirmation of, of the votes. And so they get all the senators back in. And I don't know if people remember, but Lindsey Graham gets up there. He seemed drunk, frankly, um, got up there and said kind of like, I did my best, man. I'm done. Yep. I tried. I'm done with Trump. And again, that lasted about 48 yeah. hours, maybe 24 hours. But there was that moment. And, you know, it it it. it uh, you know, almost getting killed focuses your attention. Right. You know, and 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 I guess the 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 just to draw this point out for our listeners, the key there is not just that he, you know, broke with Trump or got in a fight with Trump. In many ways, it's that call that probably exposes Trump to the greatest criminal liability potentially. Because in terms of, you know, in reality, Trump stoked this for months, the insurrection, the big lie, blah, 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 blah. But in the speech, if you want to be really technical about it, he just gets everybody riled up. He says, even though, again, didn't really mean anything, let's be nice. Let's be peaceful when we go over and make them stop counting the blah, 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 blah. That's a hard, um, legally, that is a hard case to make that that speech was criminally responsible for what transpired at the house. You can try it, but it's hard. But the key is in that, in that McCarthy thing, McCarthy saying, we are in danger. The seat of government is in danger, not just us individually. The seat of government is in danger. You're, you are the chief executive. You've got to save us. You've got to save the government. And you've got Trump saying, fuck it. I right. like what they're doing. And that is the president has a primary constitutional responsibility that he blew off. That's right. And we also still know almost nothing about what Trump was doing while this was unfolding. We have shockingly few data points and the call is the biggest one. But so far without the commission, you've had some disparate congressional committees kind of trying to take a bite out of various parts of the day and what happened. And they really only focused on things like the security meltdown and the structural problems within the Capitol Police and things like that. So really, so far, that um, impeachment trial was the best forum for holding Trump accountable so far. And details of that call only came out 
mid-trial. And then the impeachment managers decided not to bring Herrera Butler up as a witness. They just admitted her statement, uh, you know, into the record and then moved on with the vote. And, you know, at the time you had some people like Sheldon Whitehouse, senator from Rhode Island, calling for the trial to be paused so they could depose McCarthy and get his testimony in under oath. And I remember at the time, my because I'm a little fuzzy on the details, but basically it seemed like they weren't going to be able to get it in. And then the House managers did some kind of procedural stuff and it was coming in. And then they kind of everybody, you know, huddled and they decided not to go ahead with it. And and what they did was like, okay, stipulate. Yes, she said this. They weren't stipulating to it being accurate. They got everybody to stipulate, yes, this woman, this this member of the House says this happened. Like, who cares? People can say anything. And I remember, you know, a lot of Democrats were profoundly disappointed. Yeah. Um, and I, I guess the idea, I think it was a terrible decision, but I think the decision was, look, we're, we're at the beginning of the Biden administration. We impeached him. We know he's not going to be convicted. Let's not drag this out. Let's let's we we've got stuff to do, and that's that is not a that is not a that is not a point with no merit. You you do have to make practical decisions, but I think that was a that was a poor one. Well, and the managers had also made the distinct call that they were going to focus all on Trump, and they weren't going to focus on the Republican lawmakers who also peddled the election lie or boosted him and his lies. And, you know, that in some ways that was a strategic decision because the manager's job was to secure a conviction if they could. And that's going to be a harder task to do when on the screen in the, you know, the trial room, you've got some of the jurors watching themselves on TV spreading lies. Right. Um, right, right so right, I think that right. was a piece of it, too. But yeah, we just we know almost nothing about Trump, what Trump was doing that day. And if we did have a January 6th commission and its members had subpoena power, which is the case for the most recent kind of draft proposal Pelosi has announced, there is just absolutely no chance that McCarthy is not going to get hauled in before that committee and asked what exactly happened on that phone call. What did he say? What did you say? And so he has this additional kind of personal reason not to want a January 6th commission to come about. And if you kind of take one of the only prominent Republicans who's calling for it to be booted out of the spotlight, you make that eventuality a lot less likely. Isn't there, this is one thing I don't understand. And, and as we've discussed in earlier episodes, I think the whole idea of a bipartisan commission is, is it, it's absurd in the sense that one of the two parties did it. So the idea that you were going to have a bipartisan commission really makes no sense. That's just not as long as one party did it and one party still supports it. It's just it's absurd. And and the alternative is what I think is actually the more proper course is to have congressional investigations. And I, I guess they're not doing that because they're sort of they don't want to they don't want to take away the the rationale for having the commission. Is that basically right? I mean, again, this is funny going back to Sheldon Whitehouse, but he was one of the ones who put out a statement in that vein saying like whether or not we have a commission, it should be buttressed with a you know, full scale congressional effort. I think kind of being savvy to the reality that the commission has pretty much stalled out since February. There's been almost no progress on it. 
Um, and you know, I really, I tried pretty persistently to get in touch with him there and to like get on the phone with him and kind of talk through the particulars he was imagining and just totally, you know, evaded, put like kind of put off by his staff and everything, which, you know, perhaps is an indication that that was more of a messaging press release than a, I'm actually urging us to do this press release. Yeah, it's it's hard to say. I Knowing him to a degree, my sense is that he'd like to do that. It, it, it may be now. I mean, I think that there is, unfortunately, a pretty widespread feeling in the Senate Democratic Caucus, kind of, we've got the American Family Plan, we've got the American Jobs Plan, man... <laughs> We need to focus. These are big, big, big things. And that is not going to, that's not going to help us get those laws passed. That is not a crazy point. Um, It may just be that the leadership has kind of told him, dude, we're not, we're just not going to do that. And, and since that's the case, he probably doesn't have any great uh, desire to talk about it because it's, doesn't make him look great to say, well, this is super important and I think it's the most important thing, but they've told me they can't do it and I'm just one guy and I'm not even that powerful. So sorry. Right. That's not a fun conversation to have. So I, I would, I would assume that is it. And, uh, you know, maybe you can get to this stuff sort of after the big legislative push. I mean, I think that, you know, look, everything, nothing is not political. Um, Democrats should be pushing this because it's right to push it, but because what elections are is when people can make decisions, and that is central to the decision. You shouldn't put the Republicans back in power because this is what they're capable of. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I agree. I think not pursuing it is a big mistake. I think missing the opportunity to you know, as the chairman of the Financial Crisis Commission put it to me, to write the definitive historical account of what happened, losing that opportunity, I think is bad. And I think we're already seeing how bad it is with the ease with which Republicans are rewriting what happened or reframing what Mm -hmm. happened or absolving themselves in the narrative. And I know that, you know, Democrats don't believe that, but perhaps if you had another body gathering the evidence and doing investigations and finding out exactly what Trump was doing that day, you would at least kind of have this third party thing to look at and hold up, even though, like you say, on a bipartisan commission, you're kind of screwed because you either have Trumpy Republicans who will never take any accountability, non-Trumpy Republicans who will be rejected out of hand by most of the Republican constituency, or a whole hog partisan commission, which again, Republicans will reject out of hand. But I do think something as something as huge historically as what happened on January 6th at least deserves a full-fledged investigation and report, even if that report is rejected by half the country right now. But, you know. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think, you know, the thing is that it's a lot of these people, a lot of these Democrats, good people are stuck in a in a in a bygone era or rules that are no longer operative and the idea that well you've got to get you know you got to get both parties on board and that way everybody you know everybody agrees and stuff like that 
you know, th- that you're going to get, uh, you're going to get both parties on board and that way it'll sort of have the blessing of everybody and everybody will believe it. Well, that's just not the country we're living in right now. And it is, you, you, you've, you've, they have got to get past this idea that things only matter if they get that kind of, you know, sort of laying on of hands. And to me, I don't really care about that. What you need to do is you need to actually collect the information and just put it out there. And, you know, there's a lot of performative not believing things. Oh, you know, that's fake news, blah, 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 blah. You know, whatever. Sort of the same with COVID, right? I mean, people say all sorts of crap. uh, But you need to, you need not to live inside other people's bullshit. That is a basic life lesson that I think most of us hopefully learn in our own, you know, individual lives relatively early on. It's a, it's one that we have to, you know, uh, uh, learn in the political sphere and even in a very practical sense. Yeah, you're not going to convince any hardcore Trumpers of that, but hardcore Trumpers only make up maybe maybe 35% of the population, probably more like 30 or so. Um, there's a, a lot of people who the insurrection is not popular. Most people know what happened. It's it's hardcore partisan Republicans who are in that other place. But again, they're tops a third of the population. So you need to get that just out there. And it's it's too bad that it seems so far that's not going to happen. Yeah. So now we're going to talk a little bit about the America's newest blogger, former president Donald J. Trump, and then we will get to at least I'm, one I'm listener like, question. You know, what is it, uh, you know, uh, imitation is the f- sincerest <laughs> form of flattery here, right? Yeah. So, you know, we've been kind of long promised this Trump social media platform, basically ever since he got booted off of Twitter. Um, that was supposed to be this kind of grand competitive thing that could you know, hold its own with the big boys, with the Twitters and the Facebooks and such. And then <laughs> what dropped yesterday is essentially it's just a website where it has kind of like a feed where he can put out his stuff and you can share that on Twitter or Facebook. And, you know, this is com- a blog. Yeah. It's a blog. <laughs> a verse chronological blog. I mean, you know, which it, that's also, literally what it is. Which came out the day before, as we learned this morning, Facebook is kind of sort of in the weakest way possible upholding Trump's ban for now. So those two things kind of happen back to back. Right. 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 Yeah. No. So, so, it, and it's funny, you know, if you, you know, there's this whole thing now, you're not supposed to, you're not supposed to amplify Trump. You're not supposed to link to him, blah, 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 blah. You know, I went and looked at it and, and it's just, <laughs> it's about what you'd expect. It's, it's just his, it's, it's, it's a sort of like a literary festivist, right? It's every single one is like, low energy, Liz Cheney, warmonger, <laughs> nice going, you know, just each one is like, is some attack on someone. It just, it just, uh, it just underscores how 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 debilitating and devastating that the Twitter ban was for him. I know he wants to get back on Facebook, and obviously lots of people are on Facebook, as we know, but I don't think it holds a candle to Twitter for what he needed it for. The way Twitter really, really shape unfortunately probably, but it really, really shapes news coverage for a lot of reasons. But like I mean, I'm basically off Facebook, so maybe that's coloring my view a little. 
but everybody's kind of in their own little microcosm on Facebook, sort of. It's just different. It doesn't drive news the same way. It may, it may, it may spread disinformation, but it doesn't, it doesn't define news. It doesn't like, oh man, Trump went on Facebook. He said X. That's just that's just not how it works. I mean, it's a, there's a reason why everybody was so focused on his Twitter account and, and like no one ever talked about his Facebook account. Yeah, I agree with you that I think Twitter was much more of his pet passion. But I do think, you know, Facebook is seems to be the recurring largest way that people keep getting blatantly false information. So I think in that right, way, right. Uh, you know, keeping him off there is important. I don't, I was thinking about it today. I'm shocked that Trump is still banned from these platforms. Like just the bare fact of it kind of still takes me aback. And I I was thinking in Mm -hmm. some ways, I think these platforms kind of got off pretty lucky when he lost the election, because even though I think there are objections to having him banned from these platforms and some that are more than just, you know, conservative baloney, like I do think there are some pretty valid arguments about this potentially setting a dangerous precedent and things like that. But it's a lot easier, I think, to do this to a former president than a current one. And I think the real test is going to come if he runs again. That's going to be quite a decision. Right. Well, and remember, you know, it's not that long ago, but it's 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 sort of a lifetime ago. They did it when he was the current president. Right. And it was a big, big deal. Um, And it's still a bit I, you know it's it's uh it is it is it is pretty wild mm-hmm. that they and they've policed it pretty closely you know there was that there was that sort of comical very trumpian couple days where you know you've got like one of his assistants like hey i'll i'll create a new account dash donald trump and then we'll just do and it'll be and 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 pretty quickly twitter's like no dude you know ai is pretty advanced nice nice try <laughs> uh Okay, so let's. I want to. I want to. I want us to get to as many of the questions as we can. So let's 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 dig into those questions so we can we can uh, make good on uh, make good on that. Yeah. Get, keep so that going. Our first question is a two parter. We'll take the two parts separately. Um, this is from Jacob. His the first part is I'm curious about your insights on Senator Tester. From my limited perspective on him, in some ways, he seems like an anti-mansion. He can be a white, folksy, rural guy who finds ways to make the Democratic consensus sound more appealing, much like Biden has done. While he's no progressive, I find him an interesting counterpoint to mansion and cinema uh, and just asks for our, our insight on that, which is really interesting because this this question sent me down a big tester rabbit hole um, because if you remember, you know, his election in 2018 was one of the he was a huge Republican target. And so there were kind of like a ton of profiles written about him then that I I revisited to, you know, refresh my sense of him and everything. And it's, it's interesting. I think the him comparing him to Manchin in particular is really fascinating to me, especially if you look at, in some ways, I do want to say they're in different electoral worlds. Like, Trump won in 2020 in West Virginia by almost 40 points, 39 points. In Montana, he won by like 14. Yeah, it's a red state, but not a crazy red state. And 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 uh, until uh, just maybe until just this last election, a Democratic governor. Right. Uh, so it's th- there is a there is a. It, not a dominant, but a vital Democratic Party in 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 Montana. I can't remember if he if he was elected in, 
in 2006 or 2008. Uh, I guess it well, I guess it was 2006 because yeah. then 6, 12, yeah. and 18. Okay, so 2006, that big that big sort of title election uh, in the second Bush administration. I think the thing is that first of all, I think. Tester was a relative newcomer to politics when he was elected. I don't. I'm not sure if it's his first thing ever. But Joe Manchin had been around in, in West Virginia politics forever. He'd been a governor. You know, he he kind of was a big deal in that state. And they have similar political situations, um, but go about it very differently. And I think you know Joe Manchin wants to. It's not just that Joe Manchin does not want to be heavily defined as a national liberal Democrat, neither is, neither is Tester, but it's sort of part of his brand that he wants to be very visible, very visible, kind of bringing everybody together, all that kind, you know, kind of that's his shtick. And it's just not Tester's shtick. He's, you know, he doesn't, there's certain things he he can't be part of, Um but he goes about it a different way. And I think the other thing is, is that, again, it's not that there's no Democrats in Montana. I mean, it's funny because, you know, up until very recently, West Virginia is a very Democratic state, um, you know, until 20 years ago. But there is that difference that probably makes his thing, you know, m- more possible. But it's pretty, pretty impressive, frankly, that he's been able to, um, you know, he's been able to win three terms there. And, the, you know, even the first one, the first one was, I remember it was really tight. Just, I think it was Conrad Burns he beat. Um, this guy who was this, this you know, very right-wing senator who I think was, you know, he was kind of embroiled in the Abramoff scandal and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah. And something I think, Tester. something I think that's interesting about Tester is, you know, in the question, um, you know, Jacob said he has a sense of that he's kind of like Biden. And I thought that comparison was interesting because when I was kind of going through all the, all the Tester stuff, you know, if there's one word to kind of sum up how he likes to portray himself as a politician, it's authenticity, right? Like he lost three of his fingers uh, in some kind of uh, like industrial accident. He is I think uh, a farming accident, yeah. you know, mechanized farming, but right. like a tractor or something like that. Yeah, Because he's still, you know, that's something he touts all the time. He is a farmer alongside being a senator. You know, he kind of promotes the idea that some lower level government positions have where the idea is that you're, you know, you're a citizen and also, uh, you know, a legislator, you have your own job in addition to being in whatever body you're in. Um, and, you know, I get all his press releases and they're always called things like, you know, dirt. And they'll talk about like, I just came in from the farm, <laughs> wanting to send you guys right, a quick right, email. Right. But it's kind of funny because even though that's very different from Biden's kind of I love Amtrak and ice cream authenticity, that's both of their that's their coinage of the realm is authenticity for yeah, better it's or for worse. touch kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. it's like this is and who I, I am. He- I think I don't remember who he who he ran against in 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 2018, but I think in 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 many of his races, he's running against someone who's like, oh, Montana values, but they're like, you know, a lawyer in in Billings or something like yeah, that. So he's and, always like dinging everybody, like, oh yeah, uh, I can tell you're, you know, because everybody's doing like you know farm commercials, and <laughs> so he's he's always that he's the fact that he is, from what I can tell, like legitimately, you know. A farmer, and I guess he obviously can't do it full time now, but he still kind of you know takes a few turns of the tractor or whatever. That's a pretty big part of his you know 
pretty big part of his thing in Montana. Yeah. I mean, in 2018, he was competing against a guy who was from Maryland who had like a really strong Maryland accent. So that kind yeah, of played right into his yeah, shtick. Yeah. But I yeah, do, th- yeah. I think, I just thought it was funny because he does have some kind of shades of Biden. And there was this one quote I came upon from the president of the Club for Growth who, you know, while dinging him, called him a likable guy from Montana. And I was like, that's, I mean, that's exactly what Tim Scott just said about Biden, right? It's like, he seems like a nice guy, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, that was interesting to me. And also I went back over um, a lot of clips coming in from the Hill about these people. And it's just kind of shocking that Tester has only spoken to reporters in these scrums, like once or twice a month since Biden's term started. I mean, Manchin talks all the time, which in some ways is why I think a lot of people are like, why is the focus on Manchin? Why not cinema? Especially given their similar filibuster postures. But it's because he loves to talk to reporters and he does it constantly. So he's giving new content all the time. She almost never talks to reporters, but Tester also more taciturn. So isn't isn't the spotlight as like the conservative Democrat like Manchin is. Yeah, well, for a lot of these guys, guys and gals, you know, there's just Manchin's a really good politician. He just is. He has to be to survive in West Virginia, given what's happened in that state in the last 20 years. He's got his own kind of thing. But in most of these cases, if you're someone in a in a red or kind of purple state, very little to be gained for, for you in kind of speaking up on all these controversial issues. You just keep your head down. Yep. I think that's right. So what's our next question? So our next part of our question, also from Jacob, is I'm wondering what you think of the latest think piece craze about people being overly cautious about a return to COVID. I'm specifically thinking about Alex McGillis's Twitter Twitter thread from Sunday and Emma Green's new piece in The Atlantic, but these aren't the only examples laying into the liberal excesses of caution. You want to start, Josh? Yeah. You know, I actually said a few things about this on Twitter yesterday, and I and I and I published an email from a reader who really reacted angrily to this stuff. And I I have a similar feeling. I think that there. I mean, I think we all know. Besides COVID denialists, people who understand there's COVID and they're going to take a vaccine and whatever, there's certain kind of people who are like really upset that someone somewhere may still wear a mask after it's not absolutely necessary. Like that really gets like gets to them. And there is also, I think, this effort on some people's part, like, well, conservatives aren't the only one who don't follow science. There's also these liberals and they're still keeping their schools remote and all this kind of stuff. And there's the, the article that, that Jacob is referencing is this one in The Atlantic. And they, the, the Atlantic has kind of cornered the market on these kind of articles. They've got this one, I think, economist from Brown University, and I have a degree from Brown University, not no bad thing about Brown University, who's been the sort of the person saying, you know, oh yeah, no problem having schools open during COVID. Um, it's not the kind of person, not not the not the not the um, not the not the academic background I would want to take COVID advice from. Uh, but they they're kind of big on this, and they had this piece saying, oh, you know, these there's this city that they're still keeping an outdoor mask mandate. Oh, we know that's BS and you don't have to do that. And I find the whole thing kind of gross, frankly. There's no question that certain people are just kind of holding on to a lot of the mitigations, maybe longer than is absolutely necessary. It's important to remember that pundits, the, the rate of pundit vaccination 
is like 70% now, basically. Like almost everybody I know in the sort of the news world has been vaccinated or is in the course of being vaccinated. That's not the rest of the country. Country at large, about 30% vaccinated max. Some states lower than that. So it's not that you can stop doing all this stuff. And I think the basic thing is, look, we've just been through a horrific year-long thing when like lots of people died, lots of people still have persistent illness. It's scary. It turned the world upside down. And a lot of the places that that these people are sort of tut-tutting are places where the pandemic was most severe at the very beginning. And look, people are traumatized. And like some places are going to be a little more cautious than others. And, you know, if, if, if someone still kind of needs to hold on to their mask, even, I mean, look, you should still wear a mask now. Most people aren't vaccinated. But six months from now, when, when in, most, in many parts of the country, most people are vaccinated, you know, if you still want to hold on to your mask, either because you just don't like getting common cold or just because you're not ready, you know, more power to you. And I, I just th- th- look, it is certainly true that there are some people who their COVID mitigation got wound up with their opposition to Trump and it became kind of part of their identity. Yeah, sure. There's a little of that. There definitely is. But like there are worse things. And I and I just I don't like the the tut tutting desire. Right? It, it offends me. I kind of feel differently about it. I think because to me, the act of wearing a mask at this point can't be divorced from the social ramifications of that. I think thanks to Trump, not wearing a mask meant you were a Trump supporter. That was a sign of allegiance to him. And the liberal reaction to that was, I think, to hew even closer to wearing a mask and to being very, very cautious. And I think now, you know, newest CDC guidance is if you're if you're fully vaccinated and you're just, you know, walking around outside, you don't have to wear a mask kind of thing. I think that there are a good amount of liberals who are now vaccinated who want to do that, who want to take off their mask, who want to see people, you know, Keep in mind, the CDC is more cautious than most people all the time. But since we're in a pandemic, we're hewing to their advice, even though that is probably more cautious than more people than most people would be if they kind of understood the dynamics of the pandemic. For instance, you know, I was doing some reporting about when we found out Trump had COVID and he had just done that that debate with Biden. And I was doing reporting with a lot of epidemiologists trying to understand how much danger Biden is in. And that com- those conversations also kind of sprawled out into including what's safe or unsafe, you know, outside, what's the safety level? And they told me during those calls, you know, these multiple scientists said, you don't really need to wear a mask outside. The risk of transmission is extremely low unless you're basically talking right into somebody else's unmasked face. So there's never been a huge scientific mm-hmm, reason to mm-hmm. need a mask outside. But thanks to Trump, it became an important talisman of what side you were on. And I think people took that very seriously, especially as this was happening around the election, where you're feeling the most pressure to show what side you're on. Um, And so I think my problem with the argument that's just kind of like, who cares what they're doing? Why are you so up in someone else's business? Let them wear a mask if they want. I think because there are deeper implications of wearing a mask, some people who want to stop wearing them, but who don't want that to be taken as a sign of 
you're on Trump's team or you're not on the Democrats team. I think there's some anger coming from that feeling that's being aimed at the people who won't give up the mask and who won't give up the super cautious lifestyle because again, it's a, it's a sign of what team you're on. So I think that's creating some friction. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I, I, yeah, I get that. I get that. Yeah. And the other piece that I've just been thinking about is liberal decision makers, you know, lawmakers, governors, people in the positions who are deciding what's open and what's closed take their cues from their liberal constituency. And if you have a constituency who's going to politically punish you for opening things or decry it as too, uh, you know, not cautious enough or as reckless, that's a cue that they're going to take. And I do think that we're seeing that even on the highest levels. Like, I, I think there's absolutely reason for uh, the president to model cautious behavior. But the truth is he is vaccinated and almost everyone in the government is vaccinated. And I'm not sure without Trump that we wouldn't be seeing them walking around outside without masks because that's what the science shows. That would be reflecting to the American people that this is what you can do when you're vaccinated. But I think because Trump made it so intensely political, how you react to this pandemic, that now the overcautious stance is kind of being taken by the leaders as well, who are mirroring the behavior that they think their constituents want to see. And while I think in general, being overcautious is probably better for society than being undercautious, there are ramifications of that, which include, you know, things like opening up schools. And we know that kids are being hurt by remote learning and making being made unhappy by it and things like that. And so I do think that the the societal baggage around wearing a mask and around being overcautious is having more serious effects than just pissing people off who want everyone to take off their masks now. I guess I, there's a lot to that. And I, I, I think you are, you are right to a significant degree. I guess m my sense of this is that, you, you know, you can't unwind these. The fact that Trump was like that means that you just had a much lower level of mask wearing and mitigation everywhere and and a lot of what the people in the administration are trying to do is 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 un, still unwind that right there's 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 because again in it's been clear you know I followed this whole kind of uh you know, aerosol transmission thing very closely from the from the beginning of the pandemic, and and it has been pretty clear from early on that outside is fairly safe. And ironically, the big test case, and and I'm, I'm curious to see more about this, was the protests, right? The protests you had, you know, you had people wearing masks, but you know, a decent amount of masks in the in the you know uh, BLM George Floyd protests, but huge crowds people packed together. And I remember a lot of people saying like, look, we're going to find out what the story is on being outdoors. And basically, those people did not get sick. And that really told us that by and large, again, you're, you're, if you're like, uh, you know, if you were in a, uh, you, you know, if you're at a football stadium or baseball stadium in the old days in a packed crowd, you should probably wear a mask. Right, because if you're long periods of time right next to each other, it's probably still safer. But yes, absolutely true. You, you, you um, outdoors. There's not a lot of reason to wear masks. Certainly, if you're vaccinated, hundred percent. 
I guess my sense is that, I mean, I know a lot of liberals, they're all taking off their masks, right? I mean, they all want to go out and do stuff. They're not holding back. Um, there are certainly people, and like you see it on Twitter, when you say like, you know, you don't necessarily, you know, it turns out it's pretty safe outside. It's really indoors and you'll have certain people who kind of, you know, those people who say like, you know, Josh, wear a mask, Marshall, right? The kind of <laughs> certain people who kind of like, that's like their, it's become their whole identity. There's stuff like that. I guess my point is, is that I think the municipalities that are, and that's the point of this, that this reader was making, the municipalities that are are kind of holding back tend to be places not where people are especially liberal. It's pieces places that were really devastated by the pandemic, um, and they're just hyper cautious. Uh, so that's my take. I, I agree with you. It's both, but I think to me, I think that it is. Uh, I. My sense is it's it's more than that. But even look, even I see that you know when I when I when I go out, you know when I go indoors, even though I'm fully vaccinated, been fully vaccinated for a while. Uh, when I go indoors, I wear a mask. Just seems stupid not to. Um, you know, an indoor space vaccine isn't 100. percent I don't really mind wearing the mask, whatever. Um, but when I'm outdoors. I mean, if I'm out, if I was out like taking a jog, I wouldn't. But like I'm walking into the store and kind of, you know, out and about. I keep it on just because I don't want to worry other people kind of or I don't want to have them thinking like, oh, is he not vac? You know, is he not vaccinated? And I'm whatever just, you know, kind of makes everybody puts everybody at ease. So um, I, I get I get that this stuff is, is, uh, is out there. And, and look, I also get that people are traumatized in multiple different directions. People want to get the fuck back to their lives and they want to be able to do stuff. And I, I get that as its own, that is its own, um, that's its own trauma. I get that. Yeah. Okay. I think we've got time for our last question here. Uh, this is from Sarah Marie. She said, you regularly mention that tips from readers are an essential part of your journalistic process. How many emails do you get to the talk addresses, our, our general email address, per day on average? How many does Josh get? Uh, some of those are probably crank emails, correct? What percentage have reasonable content? What percentage are, re are highly useful? Uh, how much of your day is spent reading emails from readers, responding to them, et cetera? Basically, how how much of a part of email reader tips, uh, how big of a part of TPM's process are those? Well, it's definitely a very core part of the process. And it is a process that I have tried to keep core as the organization grew and evolved. Um, we get tons of emails every day. Uh, there's one, there's one thing we did about a decade ago, which I, I wasn't really comfortable with at the time. And I think it was a terrible mistake that we've been sort of saddled with, which is that there was this push to kind of put that talk email like on everybody's mailing list. Right. So, and, and that means that that email is kind of, that email box is kind of overrun with just lots of press releases and stuff like that. Um, that's annoying to me, but, uh, we get lots. I, I don't even. I don't even know how to quantify it. We get lots and lots of emails every day. Um, I also have a TPM 
email address that is just to me that when I, if I respond to your talk email, it comes from that one. So I also get ones to that email address. Um, I read a lot of them. I no longer read every single one. I certainly don't respond to every single, I'm just not able to. Um, I'm kind of selfish about it because I just, it keeps me in touch with what people are thinking. It's a source of information. Um, every story we have ever been on, uh, there's some core of readers that, that they've been studying it their whole lives. You know, I remember like during Hurricane Katrina, there's like a dozen readers who are climatologists or, you know, kind of meteor, I guess actually meteorologists who were kind of giving me all the details and certain people at the National Hurricane Center and all this kind of stuff. So they are really key for me in getting tips, in getting ideas, in just keeping me current and uh, not just for the news, but also as a publisher. What are our readers thinking? What do they want? Stuff like that. Um, I read not everyone. I read lots of them. I respond to many. I'm not able to to uh, res respond to them all. Uh, starting, I guess, probably when TPM stopped being just me, the talk email address is actually a forwarding email address. So when you write to talk at talkingpointsmemo.com, that email goes to every mem every staff member's inbox. Um, and I, I see very frequently a reporter will say, oh yeah, I got a tip on this, you know, talking to this reader on that. So they are, it's not just me. I mean, the whole staff reads them. And I think probably you know, different people read them to different extents. And Kate would, would, you know, could probably give, give us a better sense of that. But I will simply say this, when you write to talk, and many of you know this because I've, I've corresponded with you for years, but when you write to talk, that is not like when you write to like contact at amazon.com. I, I, I think it is rare when an email doesn't get seen. It probably happens sometimes because there's just tons of email and something gets missed and something like that. Uh, but we read them. We often respond to them and they are really core to our editorial process. It is, is just kind of organic to the organization. So, and, and Kay, you tell me, I mean, you're, you're, you have a perspective that I don't about how it, you know, the, the life of that, of that stream in the organization. Yeah. I'd say I'm on the, the high end, uh, uh when it comes to reporters who kind of look at the email a lot. Um, I look at them all pretty much every day just because ever since, you know, I started at TPM, I just realized that, you know, well, the hardest thing about being a reporter to me is pitching. You know, you got to come up with an idea that's not what everyone else, not the same thing everyone else is doing, but you got to figure out a feasible way to do it. And, you know, TPM also kind of specializes in having m more, you know, a more interesting angle into stories. You know, we're not trying to replicate what, is CNN or Politico, how they're talking about it. We're trying to, we're trying to come at things from different angles, whether that be, you know, analytical, historical, maybe just a, an underreported facet of the situation, you know, different things like that. And I think our readers are really helpful with that because like Josh says, a lot of you have a uh, specialist backgrounds, which can be helpful in giving insight into a story, because especially as a political reporter, you know, one week it's tax policy, the next it's immigration. That's just, that's a lot you have to cover. So it's helpful when people who have backgrounds in these things can give you their perspective or, hey, here's a part of this and no one else is talking about, but it's important. And here's why you should be looking at it. Um, I, I also really like when um, readers tell me things that are happening 
in their hometowns, especially stuff that has gone under the radar of national outlets. And, you know, maybe only your community papers picked it up or maybe yeah, it was only huge. on Facebook. Absolutely huge. Yep. Yeah, that's really, really helpful. Um, and the other thing that I really appreciate is when readers have been following a storyline that I've been covering, um, you know, a story that has kind of incremental chapters to it that I've been on for a while. Um, I've had a few stories like that where readers kind of write in and say, hey, you covered this a while ago. I don't know if you're still interested, but this just happened or XYZ just happened. That gives me this really cool way to kind of re-enter a story that I covered, you know, years or months past and kind of resurrect it and give it fresh life. That's something I probably wouldn't have seen unless the reader brought it to my attention. So that's kind of my, well, and of course, when people write in nice things, that that too means a lot. But those are all the the many reasons that I kind of take advantage of of our reader emails, which I think are a little bit different than how other outlets get uh, get tips. Yeah, no, it's it's it. You know, it's fifteen twenty years ago, the national news ec- ecology was much more top down and and much more. Um, you know, just the the, the storylines being determined by you know editors in Washington D.C. and New York, uh, and and the internet and social media has changed that a lot. I mean, there's still a lot of top down, whatever, but it has changed that, and so I, I think it is it is not quite as big an impact as it was at TPM again. 2002, 2006, were kind of like, you know, stories percolating in your town in Montana or Missouri or Florida, and kind of no one on the nation, in the national news world, world has heard anything about it. It's less so now, but it's still, it is still the case. I, there are lots of stories, and it is many ways the stories I like best that you know, you don't have to be an atomic scientist. You don't have to be a meteorologist. You can you 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 don't have to have any any uh, a specialty that you think is relevant to the news. You just have to have eyes because people who people who read TPM who really care about news who are just news junkies you see things locally that you understand has significance beyond just your your locality. And we still get lots and lots of stories start exactly that way. I mean, it, it again and again and again, it happens all the time. And that's even, it is great for us at a number of levels, not least of which just in a, in a very practical publisher sense, when you tip us off to something, that's something our competitors don't know. We're going to know it first because you tipped us off. You know, and 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 you're not going to find out about it just by watching the same, you know, two or three hundred national political reporters on Twitter. So it it uh, it's really organic. It really matters a lot to us. There's nothing, you know, you think it might be relevant. Send it in. You know, not everything is great. We 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 read them. We profit from them, and uh, it's just one of the things that I love most about this site. So. That's, I don't know if that's more than you wanted to hear, but that's, that's at least a significant part of the story. Yeah. And, you know, if you're looking for something else to send there to talk at talkingpointsmemo.com, podcast questions are a great idea. Thank you so yep. much to everyone who sent them in so far. They've been great. We're still working through them. We still have a backlog, uh, but send in any, any new ideas, thoughts you have. We really appreciate it. 
Yeah, absolutely. And remember, uh, the Josh Marshall podcast is brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. If you're ready to give it a try, you can get 25% off your first order at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. That's Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. All right. All right. Later. Thanks, guys.